I've been uh, reading this book as a bit of holiday reading called Safe and Sound, Standing Firm in Spiritual Battles by David Pallison. Uh, part of the reason I've been reading it is that David Pallison's had a big impact on my life. He taught a number of the counselling classes that I've taken, but it's also the last book that he wrote before he died in 2019. But in the introduction, he tells the story of his conversion. And God had been drawing David to himself through his first 20-odd years of life. Up to that point, he'd you know, been pushing God away. The moment that God really got his attention was through a friend, Bob Kramer, a fellow uni student. And Kramer had started this five-year-long conversation about Jesus. And Pallison says, He was the first person I met who was thoughtful about his faith. He was able to mount an intellectual defence of Christianity that was very compelling. But the reason our conversation went on for five years is because I didn't want a saviour. But on one particular day, something different happened. It was like other conversations they'd had. Bob would explain reasons for Christianity, which now made perfect sense to David. He writes, Then Bob stopped making the case for Christianity and simply shared his heart with me. He said, Diane and I really love you and we respect you, but what you believe and how you're living, you are destroying yourself. Bob had earned the right to say this to me and the Spirit used those words in my life. Immediately, I came under intense conviction of sin. My sins flashed before my eyes Attitudes, thoughts and actions that a few minutes before I had seen nothing wrong with. Most fundamental of it all, it struck me that I had not believed in the love God had for me. Palson then asked, how do I become a Christian? I had a conversation about God's promise of being made clean and being given a new heart from Ezekiel. Then and there, Palson asked for the Lord's forgiveness. A sweet story, isn't it? The sweet words were spoken in the context of a friendship. A friend shared his heart with another friend. He took a risk to be honest. What you believe and how you're living, you're destroying yourself. The loving intent behind that honesty was heard. And they were God's means of bringing life Don't you want to grow in speech, sweet speech like this? Speaking in winsome and wholesome ways. Speaking words that enrich those around you. Well, that's what our focus is for today. Just to give you some context in the past, I've had the opportunity to to preach here on on Proverbs. And we looked at the opening chapters a couple of years ago uh, and kind of took them a chapter at a time. And uh, at that point... One of the things that I really emphasise and that struck me in my, my study of Proverbs is this idea of crossroads moments. That, that what Proverbs is designed to do, it's designed to bring us to a decision point where we see the difference between wisdom and folly, life and death. And it's about bringing moments of decision that we, that we live out every day into really sharp focus. It's helping us to live out a, a practical wisdom that's shaped by a fear of the Lord, when, when knowing him is central to our daily life. 
Now today and in the next two weeks, what we're going to be doing is it's not so much unpacking each chapter in its own terms, but we're going to be looking at it in a thematic way. Uh, and particularly with an application to our relationships with one another. We thought that would be a helpful focus for the start of a new year. And I guess part of it's consistent with uh, the Christian life. At the heart of the Christian life is, is knowing Jesus and being known by him. But it's also knowing and being known by one another. So that'll be the focus which we, we, we apply what we're looking at each week. Today our focus is on our speech. Next week we'll look at self-control and the week after humility. In terms of an outline for today, we're going to be asking the question to start with, what is sweet speech? It's kind of the longest section in the talk, so it kind of sample a range of concerns from Proverbs. There's, there's quite a bit of ground to cover there. Secondly, we'll be moving on to ask, well, where does sweet speech come from? And then thirdly, how do I practically grow in sweet speech? So that's where we're headed. Firstly, what is sweet speech? I'm kind of using that term to, to kind of sum up the way Proverbs talks about speech that is wise, the way wise people speak. And there are a whole lot of Proverbs that de- describe sweet speech. Uh, so there's some that highlight this emphasis on, on gracious speech. To, to hear gracious words is, is like tasting something sweet in your mouth. And so in our passage that Danny read earlier, Proverbs 16, 21, the wise in heart are called discerning, and gracious words promote instruction. Emphasis on gracious words. Uh, and then 23 and 24, the hearts of the wise make their mouths prudent, and their lips promote instruction. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. What's honeycomb like? It's pure sweetness. It's it's natural. It it melts in your mouth and it's satisfying. And that's what wise speech is like. And it's sweet like wisdom. So Proverbs 24, 14 to 15. Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is like honey for you. If you find it, there is a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Sweet words are also persuasive. So the verses I read earlier, from chapter 16, the NIV translated as promote instruction when we speak in in gracious ways. And I gather what that's talking about is it's creating a climate where you're actually willing to hear someone. They speak sweetly to you. You're, you're willing to hear them. And interestingly, the ESV translates 1623, uh, sorry, 1621, as the wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. In 1623, again in the ESV, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. So we hear wisdom. Uh, It's sweet and compelling. We're open to someone's influence over us. I think of my father-in-law, the words that he spoke to me the Monday before our wedding. 
It's a bit of a backstory. Uh, I was living in a share house with a group of guys. It just so happened that that property sold and, and all of us in the share house had to be out of the house by the same day as our wedding, a Saturday. So it was quite a, a stressful week in the lead up to our wedding. And in my frustration, in my stress, I blamed Haley. I accused her of not being a good enough support for me. And the Spirit convicted me of the unhelpfulness of those words and, um, and their damage, and I confessed that to Haley. And I, later that afternoon, I went for a, for a walk with her, her dad, kind of just chewing the fat, um, being open about what had happened between us. And uh, one of the things he said to me was, you know, one of the things I've learned from my marriage to Beth over the years is, I just can't wish that she's the same as me. If I find myself going down that path, it's just destructive. It's utterly unhelpful. You, you need to kind of pull up and stop yourself. He said, what I have learned is the way that she's different to me, um, her particular strengths have brought such richness to my life and to my ministry. And I, and I wouldn't have them any other way. That's how I've come to think about them. Uh, but those, those words, they really were sweet and compelling. And they've stuck with me. and give me a, a way of thinking really helpfully about, about my marriage. In terms of persuasiveness, one of the other things that comes to mind, and I think of something that I've learned in my biblical counselling training, one of the things we've looked at is this idea that if you can describe someone else's experience well enough, you know, in a way that they say, that's me, he knows me, you've kind of won the person. When that happens, there's this profound influence. People are willing to hear what you have to say. That's why lots of people turn to kind of self-help gurus and influential voices in our culture. It's also sadly why some people turn away from the church when we fail to understand what life is like, well, kind of on the ground for others. What we're aiming for is we're actually aiming to know others' experience really well. But we also want our words to be sweeter than the other voices in their life, other influences. We want to be speaking something that's wholesome, something that's good, something that resonates deeply because we know the author of life. We know his words about who we are and what we're made for. I think of the example of parental instruction that has this persuasiveness that kind of runs throughout the book of Proverbs. Consider the parental instruction of Proverbs 1, 8 to 9. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a, a chain to adorn your neck. See, with the parental instruction, this is the kind of thing that's going on. It's, I can see things that you can't see. I want what's best for you. I'll show you the beauty of something that you're not able to see right now. And so in Proverbs 3, we get this, this idea of the beauty of wisdom, the father trying to capture the son's heart, or helping to, to value something that he wouldn't otherwise have valued. Blessed are those who find wisdom, he says, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you can desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left are riches and honour. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. There's also this... I love you, so I'll warn you of danger, dynamic. And I'll say it in ways that are vivid and memorable, that you won't forget. So there's the, the warning against the adulteress in Proverbs 7, uh, verse 22 to 23. 
All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, till a, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now, these are the words of a parent warning a child of the danger they might not see, making the warning vivid and memorable. The sweet speech, to pick up the language of, of Paul in the New Testament, it speaks the truth in love. I think the things Paul's saying there are entirely consistent with what we see happening in Proverbs. When we speak sweetly, we speak honestly for another's good. So there's this emphasis on honesty and being a trustworthy person in Proverbs. So in our chapter, chapter 16, verse 13, kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value the one who speaks what is right. In Proverbs 24, 26, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. And time and time again, this is kind of contrasted with false testimony and lies and the damage that they do. Proverbs 12, 22, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. There's even a place for confession highlighted by Proverbs. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. The one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. We speak from the heart. So Proverbs 27.9 in an ESV puts it this way. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. I think there's a sense in which that was what was happening between uh, Bob Kramer and David Pallison. He was speaking his heart, heart of concern. But there was also an, an edge to what he said, an edge of rebuke or correction. Or if you keep going this way, you know, it's not going to end well for you. And so Proverbs brings out this emphasis on the place of rebuke. So Proverbs 27, 5 to 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a person will, in the end, gain favour rather than the one who has a flattering tongue. A range of Proverbs warn against flattery and the heart behind it. So I think of that example with David Pallison and with Bob Kramer, but I also think of different family members who at times have given us input on parenting. Some of you who know us well will have heard uh, more detail on some of these situations. Uh, but there have been family members who at different points have spoken in and, and asked us to, to question our motives. Uh, they've come with suggestions as to um, things that might be going on that we're not seeing, different, different ways of responding, different ways that we might be contributing to the problems that we're experiencing in parenting. And sometimes we've kind of openly taken them on board, and sometimes we've been really defensive. Sometimes it's been hard to hear. But usually, as we've had time to chew it over and to sit with it and to think about the context of the friendship, uh, the relationship, we realise it's been said in love. And, and usually, we've, we've adopted those words. We've seen their helpfulness, their usefulness. Now, it's worth saying that we need both truth and love. Uh, to have one without the other ends up as a distortion. So, for example, if you have love with, without honesty, as a parent, you might build your child up into thinking that they're going to be the next Australian idol. And the problem is, no one's ever had 
uh, the honesty to tell them that they can't sing in tune to save their life. Honesty without love can be harsh. Uh, we let a child know when we find them annoying, perhaps. And instead of bearing with their differences or their weakness, uh, we can speak out in ways that crush their spirit. Maybe they're honest, but are they loving? Maybe not. Here's an example of the lack of honesty, how it might play out in a church context. A non-Christian couple start coming to church. Uh, they're open about the fact that they're living together. Uh, and that the church is excited to see their interest in Jesus. And uh, they welcome them warmly. And over time, they come to trust in Jesus. And then at some point, that the elders get involved and they speak to them about the fact that they can't keep living together. Shocked the couple leave the church. What happened there? Well, I'm sure there's much in that kind of a scenario that's well-intended. I'm sure there was a good desire to say, you don't have to have your life all together before you come to Jesus. You know, that's not the gospel. We don't, we don't get everything in order and come to him. He says, come to, come to me as you are. But is it possible that in that initial stage of getting to know people, is it possible that a lack of honesty about the nature of living under Jesus as Lord and all the ways that that might impact life set them up for a fall? Is it possible that there was a lack of honesty there? A sweet speech also reflects self-control. And we're to have a, a filter on our mouths, not to speak the first thing that enters our minds. Sometimes we hold our tongue. Proverbs 10, 19. Sin is not entered... Ended, sorry, by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues, or we guard our lips. Proverbs 21, 23, those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. Now, we're careful with the way we respond and, and wary of a damaging form of anger. So Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 17, 27. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. And whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Sweet speech is also timely and fitting. So Proverbs 15, 23. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply. And how good is a timely word. Sometimes it's wise correction that's needed. Proverbs 25, verse 12, ASV. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Again, I think of my father-in-law on a different occasion, sharing that same proverb I mentioned earlier, Proverbs 15, 1, with me. A gentle answer turns away wrath. In the context of Haley and I, being in a wider, caught up in a wider conflict, that was difficult. And we were, we were angry. There were reasons to be angry, and yet we needed to be measured in the way we responded and not pour fuel on the flames, as it were. And him bringing that to us at that time was just so helpful that it changed our course of action. Sometimes what's needed is a, is a kind word, so Proverbs 12.25. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. I think of my nana when I was a, a child, I was probably somewhere in the high school years, she just knew me really well. And I had this experience, I don't remember what, what particular thing it was about, but 
I was worried about my own failure in something that I had a responsibility for. And I didn't need to say any of that. She already knew that that's what I was thinking. And she spoke to that fear. And she said, you know, I knew you intended well. You, you did your best. And my fears just were eased. Her kind words cheered me up. I want us to think for a moment of, of Jesus' sweet speech while we're thinking about this idea of uh, fitting, uh, fitting speech, uh, using it in a timely and appropriate way, and particularly the idea of fitting the, the particular person. So consider the way that Jesus speaks to the simple, the fool, the mocker, and the crushed in spirit. So I'm indebted to, to Zach Eswine, who's helped me to see this. Uh, as I point out, Points back to Proverbs 1, 22, where there's this voice of wisdom crying out. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? So there's, there's three types of people here. The simple, uh, the mocker, and the fool. Uh, but later, Proverbs introduces to a fourth of the crushed in spirit or the oppressed. We don't have time to unpack each of these in detail. But the point is... Each type of person requires a different type of response. And we see Jesus living out this wisdom in his ministry. To the simple, those open to anything, he says things like this. Count the cost of following me. You might dream of a trouble-free life, but it's not going to be a bed of roses. Why? He wants to give those people realistic expectations. He knows they won't go the distance without knowing what they're in for. To the fool, someone confident in their own opinion, unwilling to listen to Jesus. Um, oh, sorry, unwilling to listen generally. Jesus tells them parables. Parables that are related, relatable, and yet the, the meaning is hidden. Why? So they might say, I don't understand. Master, would you teach me? To the mocker, a hard-hearted person who might even be violent in their opposition, Jesus says, woe to you. Words of judgment. Why? When Jesus says, woe to you, he hasn't stopped speaking to you. There's hope. It's not too late. And being called out for your sin, there's an opportunity to cry for mercy and turn back to him. Like the Ninevites who repented at the preaching of Jonah. To the crushed in spirit, those oppressed, mistreated at the hands of others, the weak, the vulnerable. And Jesus speaks tenderly. A bruised reed will not break. The point is, Jesus lived this out. He spoke sweetly. And each of his tailored approaches to each person was intended to give them life. It was an invitation to life. And we follow in his steps. We've asked what is sweet speech, and we've covered up a lot of ground there, I know. We've seen that sweet speech is like wisdom, it's persuasive, it speaks the truth in love, it practices self-control, it's timely and fitting. But where does sweet speech come from? Well, Proverbs wants to highlight it's about the kind of person that you are. Proverbs 15.2 The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. Knowledge from the wise, folly from the fool. 
The words we speak reflect whether we are wise or foolish, or whether on the path to life or to death. Now, the way Proverbs comes at this is what talks about what satisfies us as the person who's doing the speaking. So, so far, we've mainly considered the sweetness of speech as the listener to the person listening. But Proverbs also talks about the appetite of the speaker. So, Proverbs 18, 20 to 21. From the fruit of their mouth, a person's stomach is filled. With the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. The tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Are you satisfied by rash, angry words that cause harm? Words that tear down and destroy? Words that bring death? Or are you filled by speaking for others' good? Giving words that build up, words that are good for others to hear, words that give life? important to highlight Proverbs 4.23 says guard your heart or from it flows everything that you do the way we speak reveals our hearts and it's no surprise that Jesus linked our words to being produced by our hearts so Matthew 12.33 and following make a good tree sorry make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. At any given moment, the reality is either a love for God is ruling our hearts or a desire for some other thing has taken its place. So if I was to illustrate that, common occurrence for me in the home has been trying to choose a discreet moment to send a text message. Someone's messaged me and I haven't replied for a while and I'm not wanting just to be, you know, putting, dropping whatever I'm doing to attend to the phone. There might be something important to do at home. So I'm trying to choose a discreet moment, but still, one of our children might happen to barge on in on that moment when I'm trying to compose my thoughts and express, express something to someone in my text message. And in that kind of moment, I'm just wanting peace and quiet. I'm wanting not to be interrupted. But when someone kind of comes in, this is my knee-jerk reaction is tended to be to, to speak harshly, to speak critically. My interpretation is, you're in the way of what I want right now. You see, the, the words we're speaking, they're either, either coming from a heart of love or manipulation. Love is, I want what's best for you. Manipulation is, I want something. How can I use you to get what I want? And take a look at these uh, visual tools that I use in counselling. Uh, just up on the, the screen. So the first is at a negative feedback loop. And I usually use this in marriage counselling, but it, it could really be used to picture any relationship. But what it's trying to do is it's trying to show uh, how we each live from our hearts. And in a particular relationship, we can each come with our own particular complaints and problems that we bring to the table. Uh, but when we do that, we keep responding in the same way that we usually respond, reinforcing the, the, the pattern. Um, and each person kind of is, is just kind of stuck with seeing what they're not getting from the other person. And nothing changes. It's just kind of this, this endless spiral. 
Now, but if we look at the next slide, let's think about the desires operating in the heart. So for one person on the left, there's desires for comfort, predictability, ease and control. For the other on the right, there's desires to be understood, to be heard and valued. Now it's not that these things are bad. The problem is when these things rule our heart, both people end up manipulating the other. It's not love. But the next slide shows us a different dynamic. It's loving God with our hearts. It's where our love for God, it trumps other desires and it results in loving the other person, putting their interests before our own. And it leads to a very different result. Both people are encouraged in Christ. To flesh this out a little, let's look at the next slide. Oh, sorry, sorry, Danny, you had the right one. Yep. Um, so when a love for God rules our hearts, we, we may still desire some of the same things, it's just they're not at the top of the list anymore. Uh, instead, we see a desire to please the Lord, to reflect his character to the other person, to act for the other's good, to submit to them. So the relationship plays out very differently. So here's one further visual tool in the next slide. If the slide before was kind of a big picture level of the relationship, the next one, like the, re the recurring pattern, then this one's like one moment of conflict. There's a situational trigger at the top. There are arrows fired across, ways of attacking the other person. There are defensive shields put up, ways that we protect ourselves in conflict. And beneath that are our desires, particular things that we're wanting and not getting. And the, the last slide, Danny, if you move on to that, uh, walks us through how we might use this to gain insight into such moments of conflict. We can ask, what happened that triggered the conflict? What particular words or actions did I take to attack the other person? What particular words or actions did I take to protect myself? And then the heart beneath it. What did I set my heart on? What was I wanting and not getting? What specific desires were ruling my heart in that moment? I could map out my texting example. The trigger was an interruption partway through writing an SMS. I attacked by speaking harsh words. I was wanting a moment of peace and quiet, free from interruptions. A bad thing? No. But in that moment, I wanted it too much, and I saw my child as being in the way of what I wanted instead of someone to love. But the good news at this point is that we're all invited to become wise. Jesus is holding out the invitation to each of us. Each one of us has spoken at times in ways that's exposed our foolishness. Each one of us have had other things rule our hearts other than a love for the Lord. At times, each one of us have failed to love in our speech and we've instead tried to use others. And Jesus says, I have forgiveness that's as deep as your problem. He says, come to me. Leave your prickly ways of speaking behind. I'll make you clean. I'll give you a new heart. I'll enable you to speak sweetly as I do. We've asked, where does sweet speech come from? And we've seen that sweet speech flows from the heart. And Jesus actually gives us new hearts so we can grow in sweet speech. So the last question is, how do I grow in speaking sweetly? 
And I want to give you two different activities that you might like to go away and do from here. This is kind of really my, my main application at the end. And these two activities go in different directions. So one is thinking about someone who's impacted you. The other is thinking about someone that you're currently interacting with. So the first one, pick someone who's spoken sweetly to you. And I want you to ask two questions. But just, just in case you're wanting to kind of capture this, I've got these questions up online so you don't have to feel you've got to note them down now. Um, so perhaps I could just share that, that link with you. Uh, it's bit.ly, so B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash sweet hyphen speech. And then you'll be able to access these questions that I've got um, and come back to them in the future. So two questions to ask about someone who's spoken sweetly to you. In what ways has this person lived out a sweet way of speaking? Do you think about your experience of them? What, what makes them a sweet speaker? Second, what can you learn and put into practice from them? And the second kind of activity, it's a different one, I want you to pick one relationship. And I'm going to ask you to make this person the focus of your application today and over the next two weeks as well. Uh, so from today, before next Sunday, I want you to think about particularly your speech with that person. So it's helpful to pick someone that you're likely to have a number of interactions with over the course of this week. And what I want you to do is I want you to capture scenes of life that you experience with this person. Pay attention to particular interactions that you have with them and, and after they've happened, in hindsight, I want you to review them and ask the following questions. One, did my words bring life or death? Did I bear thorns or fruit? Two, how did that interaction reveal my heart? Three, if you feel exposed from that and you see things that you know are not good, confess to the Lord, ask for his help. If on the other hand, you actually see the spirit was at work and you produced fruit, give thanks for that fruit. That's the spirit at work in you. And ask for the Lord's help that you might do that more and more. You know, as Paul says, we, he highlights out our love for one another in the New Testament letters, but he says, do so more and more. Ask, ask for that kind of more and more ability to, to speak sweetly. Four, ask if you find that your heart has been wayward. Ask, how can a love for God reshape the desires of my heart? How can a love for God reshape the desires of my heart? And fifth, how does love for God change my attitude, my tone of voice, and the words that I speak with this person? So that's something that you can go away and do that would, that would be a good thing to do, to, to apply the things we've been speaking about today. Uh, but let's close in prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Jesus, we praise you because your words are sweet. Many of us have heard your voice firsthand, and we have tasted and seen that your words are good. We praise you because your words give life, and you always speak with our good at heart. We confess to you that our ways of speaking are often less than sweet. Sometimes our words tear down and destroy instead of building up and healing. Would you forgive us? Would you help us to live out of the new hearts that you've promised us? Would you give us 
all that we need to grow in speaking sweetly to all around us. May we reflect your glory and goodness in our speech. In your name.